Hello and welcome to today's conference call. My name is Joe Trevino. Thank you for joining us this morning. We'll be starting the conference call momentarily. We invite you to participate in today's conference call. Some of you have submitted questions beforehand and we'll be answering those questions uh, right after the consideration of today's call. Uh, meanwhile, for those who would like to ask a question during the call, we welcome you to do so at any time. We have participants connected in different ways today, mostly through the Zoom app or through the browser. If you have connected this way, you'll see a Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom window. You'll be able to submit questions there. Uh, for those of you who have connected via phone, you can dial star nine to virtually raise your hand to indicate that you have a question. You can also dial it again, star nine, to virtually lower your hand. Uh, we'll be reminding uh, you of the ways that you can participate in today's conference call uh, later on. But what I'd like to do now is to introduce the panelists in today's conference call. We have John Bird, co-founder of Albion Financial Group, member of the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, and chairman of the Albion Board of Directors. We also have Jason Ware, Chief Investment Officer, Chief Economist and Partner, member of Albion Board of Directors, and Patrick Lundergan, a Wealth Advisor uh, for Albion Financial Group. All right, we are ready to go. John. Good morning, everybody, and thank you all for attending. We work to have these calls because it seems like a really nice way to get information out to you about what we're thinking, uh, as well as we often hear from you, well, what are other clients asking? So in that vein, today's presentation, rather than a series of monologues, is going to be Patrick and Jason, who you, to whom you were just introduced, and I really answering the questions that all of you have been asking us over the last month or so. Please, as Joe highlighted, if you have questions during this presentation or during this conversation that you'd like us to address, uh, use one of those methods that Joe described to submit them so we will do our best to get to them. Because the goal here is to answer and uh, if, to the extent we can illuminate those areas that you're interested in. So it is gonna be a little bit different. We are going to have a panel discussion, which will make it a little more challenging for our moderator, Joe, who will likely just keep us all on the screen as we bounce ideas back and forth between us. As Joe mentioned, we have Jason on here, who's our chief financial officer and is well-versed in all aspects of markets and economies. Patrick, who's one of our wealth advisors, who can really help us think through issues beyond markets and economies that can have an equal or often greater impact on financial outcomes for families. So without further ado, I'm going to dive right into this. And I'll lead off, and Jason, you're probably going to be the first one to take a stab at this, which is, what are the key factors that have caused the market to sell off this year? Thanks, John. Um, and thank you, everyone, for joining the call today. And I'll just make a quick uh, correction here. Um, I am the chief investment officer, not the chief financial officer. want to make sure that's very clear to our clients before I start talking about financial markets and investing. Um, but it's certainly been a tumultuous year here uh, in, in the financial markets, whether it be in stocks and even bonds this year. Um, I think we're all very aware of the headlines that have been driving uh, the volatility in the equity markets, whether it's high inflation or a tightening monetary uh, policy regime from the Fed, who really orchestrated quite the pivot in November and has been pushing on the accelerator to tighten monetary policy that is raising interest rates, starting to talk about winding down the balance sheet as well. Uh, war in the Ukraine, um, obviously a horrible, horrific event that's unfolding there in Eastern Europe uh, at the hands of Russia, uh, supply chain challenges, and of course, let's not forget that we're also coming off of three uh, 
pretty strong years for stocks in 2019, 2020, despite the pandemic, and then last year's strong rally in 2021. So what that's amounted to is we've had a pretty strong setup for stock prices. Valuations uh, were, were arguably uh, fairly elevated, especially within the context of heightened inflation and a monetary policy um, path that was beginning to tighten in earnest. So what that's done is, and, and I again, sure, we're all very aware of this, reading the news and, and, and watching uh, television, those of you who are you know, paying attention to CNBC and Bloomberg, this stuff is being talked about all the time. Um, those factors have really kind of bumped up against uh, investor sentiment this year and have caused volatility and a drawdown in the market. Now, what we've seen also, and, I, and then I'll try to put a, a fine point on this so we can get into the panel discussion and move on to other questions. Uh, certainly, uh, there has been talk of recession as well. And, and there's some fear within the market and among equity investors that uh, that the economy may not be as strong as many think, and that recession may be, uh, you know, on the horizon, and that too have, has caused a growth scare, growth scare within the equity market, and has pushed prices down. So all of those things, all those factors coming together, has per, really produced a rather tumultuous first half of the year. Yeah, that makes sense, Jason, and that's certainly what we've what we've seen and what we've shared. The supply chain in issues uh, really are critical. It's easy to point to monetary policy, which is absolutely a big piece of it, but we still have supply chain constraints that we are all well aware of if we look at the newspaper almost any given day, where manufacturers cannot get the materials they need to make the products that they wish to make. So those COVID-induced supply chain challenges are still very much with us. Our view is that they will work out. Uh, it's taken a while to work out. Certainly Shanghai has been in the news lately while it's been on a full lockdown for what are we in seven weeks there, six or seven weeks of full lockdown, which means that parts aren't getting made. And so those supply chain Im impacts from COVID are still very much a factor. And Jason, as you highlighted as well, uh, the war in Ukraine is terrible. Yep. Russia is a very small economy. It's seven and a half percent the size of our economy. And it's really a resource-based economy. However, the resource they have is carbon. And carbon is priced, meaning oil and gas is priced on global markets. So a little bit of supply disruption changes the pricing dramatically. So those, those are really key factors in what's been driving inflationary issues, which of course makes valuations a little bit more challenging. Question that came up, which is, you know, is the U.S. going to have a recession? If so, when? I'll take the first part of that because that's really easy. Of course we are. Recessions are normal. Business cycles are called business cycles because they do cycle. Uh, and as are bear markets. Markets typically go down at least 10% once every year. Markets typically go down over 20% at least once every three years. So the market situation we find ourselves in, while you're in it, it's phenomenally anxiety provoking, but it's absolutely normal. Now, I'm gonna pass this off to Jason and Patrick who are far wiser than me to tell us exactly when this recession is going to happen. Jason, oh, th th Thanks, John. Thank you. Um, I, I, I was gonna stipulate the same thing that you mentioned that you know economic recessions are a natural part of the business cycle. There's always one coming. You can't stay into expansion forever. It's not a permanent situation. Um, so it is simply a matter of when. Um, and and with, with that understanding, our view is that based on current data, um, a US recession is unlikely anytime soon. And I think that's the best way we can characterize it. Specifically, the way that we kind of size up the landscape is we like to look at uh, what we consider to be some of the highest um, quality leading economic indicators to try to, um, you know, gauge the direction of the economy. It doesn't do a great job of gauging magnitude. Are we going to be at growing 5% GDP or 2% GDP, but rather just directionally, which way um, are the forces pushing in the underlying economy? And I think the good news is, is that right now, um, most of those leading indicators look pretty good, you know, from jobless claims to consumption data, to housing starts and building permits, to LEI, um, they all suggest continued growth for the time being. And there are other indicators that we favor as well in credit markets like credit spreads and treasury yield curve that are all still in positive territory and, and uh, suggest that the underlying uh, economic health is still pretty strong. 
Um, and I think the good news is also that these leading, leading indicators typically uh, are out ahead of turns in the business cycle from anywhere between eight and 24 months. So they historically have shown a pretty strong um, lead time in, in predicting when the economy changes course, changes direction. So even if we were to start to see some of those indicators um, you know, change and go from positive to uh, worrisome, I think we would still have a fair amount of time if past is prologue before we do see economic recession. I think as we look out over the next, let's call it year and a half or two years, um, the risk of recession goes up some. And, and, and we feel that the core element of the rising recession risk as we look out, say, into 2024, or maybe even the second half of 23, uh, is really a function of Fed policy. And, and I mentioned uh, in the first response that really what ails markets right now is monetary policy and the fact that Jerome Powell is raising rates at a rather quick pitch here. And they're talking about you know, shrinking the balance sheet quicker than, than market participants had expected. And there is a historical precedence to show that when the Fed begins embarking upon tighter monetary policy, there are times where they overdo it and they over tighten, which can cause a recession. There's typically a fairly long lead between when that occurs and when recession occurs. So again, that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. I don't think 2022 is going to see recession, uh, but we need to see what the Fed does here. And that's probably going to tell the tale, assuming we don't get any other external shocks over the transom here. Uh, we're really watching what the Fed does and, and, and how they conduct monetary policy. Yeah, and that's helpful. I, one of the issues that comes up a lot is inflation. We're all feeling it. It's real. I filled up my gas tank yesterday and it turns out it costs more than it used to. And I think it's important for us, Jason, to share where are we big picture on our inflation views? Because clearly the last 12 months, it's, it's, it's there, it's baked into the numbers, it's baked into what we're paying. Right. We're seeing wage pressures across industries and across you know, all kinds of areas. Yeah, it is the topic du jour um, among investors, among policymakers, um, and the like. And you know, inflation. The truth is, inflation is a complicated topic in the field of economics. It's very difficult to forecast because most economists aren't even clear on what truly drives it. Um, nevertheless, we of course have a view here, and, and I'll try to sum it up as succinctly as possible. So, if you look at the vast majority of inflationary pressures over the past year, they've been driven by physical goods, not services. Uh, consumer spending has been heavily skewed towards goods demand due to rolling pandemic challenges and lockdowns. However, as demand normalizes back towards services, and, and we are seeing that in the data so far starting to emerge, demand for goods should weaken just enough as supply chain bottlenecks begin to clear and inventories become rebuilt. John Bird mentioned the fact that we are seeing some positive signs with regards to supply chains beginning to ease. We think that will continue. It'll take time, but that'll continue. And that restoration of equilibrium, demand coming down, supply going up, will take pressure off of goods inflation, which, by the way, if you look historically over the past couple of decades, typically runs at or around zero. There have even been periods where it's been deflationary on the goods front for a variety of reasons. Um, so really, that just leaves services. Where are we with services and what does that look like? Um, we believe re relief is coming on the good side. I think the Fed with their monetary policy is certainly doing their level best to try to suppress demand to help us get there. Um, so what's happening on services? It's running above trend these days, to be sure. It's, it's um, not high. It's not problematic yet, but it is running above trend. And I think unless we see a true wage price spiral or inflation expectations become unmoored, uh, and by the way, the Fed is doing their job to try to make sure both of those do not occur. Uh, then I think the good news is that services inflation is fairly well anchored. And then if we see services inflation start to settle in in the coming quarters, while goods inflation is moving the other direction, there's a good case to be made that on balance inflation will begin to come down in the, in the months and quarters ahead. Um, I think there's something to be said for the expectations among consumers and how that feeds into inflation. I think the good news is that we're all paying attention to inflation that's been rising over the last several months. And I think that feeds into how we behave as a consumer economy. But if we get to the other side of it, or frankly, when we get to the other side of it, I think the reverse is true as well. And we start to hear about how inflation is coming down and disinflation is taking hold. And some of the secular forces that have been gripping disinflation for two decades now, that is technology, globalization, aging demographics, changes in consumer habits, all of these things that have helped keep inflation 
around Fed target for so long start to take hold again, that changes the news cycle a bit, that changes how people behave. And I think overall that will amount to a cooling inflation trajectory uh, in the months to come. It was interesting watching the labor force shrink during the pandemic and the number of people who have chosen to not return to the labor force. Right. And, and there's the question, but where did they go? Well, what we're seeing actually is as companies are having to raise wages to attract workers back into the labor force, some of these folks who had left the labor force are returning. And so there is an equilibrium mechanism that's taking that's working. It just takes a while for it to work through in order to fill, refill those jobs as they exist. We've also seen the reinvention of many companies where they're doing more with less. Post-pandemic, they realized, wow, we don't need at least the same type of labor force we used to have. And certainly, well, at Albion, we haven't experienced that. We do need our, our team here. However, what we have realized is not everybody has to sit in the office every day. As more and more entities, particularly in the service businesses, realize that it expands the available labor pool because you're no longer limited by geography. And we're seeing these trends slowly take root, which from our view will mitigate that labor imbalance. If I can build on that a little bit, John, you know what we saw in the pandemic was a number of people that left the labor force because they were concerned about COVID. That has almost all but course corrected because of vaccinations, because we're moving on the other side of the pandemic. So we are seeing that participation come back in. John also noted the aging demographic, uh, which has been really kind of a multi-year, even two-decade force in the labor market where we have uh, you know, baby boomer generation retiring and millennials kind of coming into their careers. And there was a bit of a mismatch there and some friction within the labor market. We saw some of that accelerate during the pandemic. Folks who were planning to retire maybe in the next five or six years or even decade pull forward their retirements because of the pandemic and all the certainty around that. I think the good news is we are seeing that labor force participation come back. So i.e. that supply of labor is coming back, which can help with that inflation calculus. But in addition, um, I've been reading lately uh, among some labor economists talking about the unretirement phase, people who had retired early thinking, well, this pandemic has changed my trajectory. I'm just going to get out now. And who are now saying, you know what? The labor market's pretty tight. Wages are going up. And I'd like to get back into my career and are coming back into the labor force. So there is a bit of that happening as well. So the overall trend of more people coming into the labor force over the last several months is, is encouraging. Right. It's been interesting. One of the a question that actually just came from all you out there is what about housing inflation, which we've certainly seen. It's been aggressive. Everything you read about inflation discusses, or about housing inflation discusses the incredible shortage we have of housing in the country. We do. And in past cycles, as we've been through this uh, over the last 40 years of during, during my paying attention to it, those cycles tend to change rapidly, more rapidly than you would expect, than you would expect given the, size, the challenge of creating housing units. And after the fact, it's obvious. Right now, as we all know, there's a tremendous amount of building going on. Here in Salt Lake City, uh, apartment buildings are going up everywhere. Condominiums are rising everywhere. There's a lot of building going on. Well, I can't speak directly to what changes housing inflation, but what I do recognize is it is cyclical, as all these things are. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Jason. Yeah, I, I, I would add that the pace of growth that we've seen in housing over the last few years is unsustainable. And I think most economists would agree with that. I think the good news is, is that we are seeing signs of housing cooling. Um, a housing recession of the likes we saw in 2007 and 2008 is highly unlikely for a variety of reasons that we probably don't have time on this call to get into. But I do think that the pace of Price appreciation is starting to uh, normalize as well. There's a lot of normalization happening in the economy. It's been a big theme of ours this year across a variety of uh, economic uh, topics, this normalization of the economy. And that's happening in housing too. The Fed is doing its job uh, to some degree um, with regards to monetary policy to raise interest rates and also cool what's happening in housing. We're seeing some of that in uh statistics lately around um, you know, mortgages and, 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 and other housing data. So I think relief is coming from the perspective of you can't continue to go up 10, 15% a year forever. It's, it's, it's going to normalize here. Uh, and meanwhile, the underlying fundamentals of housing continues to look pretty strong. Right. 
uh, an issue on supply chain because of what we've seen about supply chain vulner uh, question on supply chain supply chain vulnerability are we going to see some domestic manufacturing increase are we going to see companies onshoring manufacturers uh, manufacturing my answer is no what we see companies do is look to where can they get their manufacturing completed at the best price in a timely manner. And unless and until that means onshore, uh, despite flag waiting politics and the like, companies are going to go where they can get it built uh, fastest and cheapest. So my expectation is that we don't learn a lot about fragile supply chains from this last event, that we'll get a few years down the road and existing uh, pre-COVID supply chains would be back in full force. Yeah, I, I would largely agree with that. I think at the margin, we're seeing some fixed investments some greenfield investment here in the United States uh, because of the COVID experience. But overall, I think companies may shift out of China because of their uh, zero COVID strategy, which is highly disruptive to doing business. And there doesn't seem to be really any end game in China around the pandemic. So we're probably going to see some investment shift away from China, but it's likely to move to just the next low cost country that isn't um, engaging in such uh, uncertainties and in, in, in policies. So I agree with John, not a lot of it's going to come back to the US just given some of the uh, challenges around costs and, and uh, the like. Right. Well, I mean, there are there are those uh, exceptions that prove the rule. Intel's right. building the big fab. There, there are companies that are bringing some manufacturing back on shore. Yep. But on balance, I think at the end of the day, the people who are sharpening their pencils and looking at the numbers uh, with regard to cost of production are likely going to keep things offshore. And, and if I may, John, those in the semiconductor market are doing so because they're seeing huge incentives to do so because semiconductors are seen as a national security issue. So you have the federal government who's very interested in incentivizing the intels of the world to build chip factories here. But outside of those unique circumstances, to your point, I think we're still looking at a, a very globalized economy. So th there was a question that came in somewhere in the last week or two around gas prices why have we seen such a sharp increase in gasoline prices? Uh, shouldn't they lag oil prices? Uh, and sort of a follow-on is why doesn't the U.S. export more oil? And my response to that, Jason, you may have some input as well, is oil is a globally priced commodity. It doesn't matter uh, whether the supply in the U.S. is adequate or not. It, it will be priced based on the global price because it is, a, it is a liquid commodity, so to speak, and that it can move around the world to where the market is best. So that has caused it go up to go up. Now, if you're selling gasoline, a refined product, you're gonna raise your prices. It, something I ran before this that just might help, under, help us all understand the relationship is between November, and, November, December, 2021, Brent crude oil was trading in the low to mid $70 per barrel rate. It peaked at over $123 a barrel in early March. It's now about $112 a barrel. So about a 50% increase in crude oil pricing. Uh, no November, December, 2021, unleaded gas was around $3.40. Uh, it's now at about $4.40, so about a 30% increase. So through that metric, actually our, the price at our pumps has lagged the price of crude over that period. It doesn't feel that way because you know, it's our pocketbooks that are paying the price of the pump. So that's what we see. But it is a globally priced commodity and that's just how it's gonna work. Yeah, I, I would echo the same thoughts. I mean, there's a very high correlation between crude oil and gasoline prices. When oil's up, uh, gasoline prices at the pump are up. There's, there's, it operates with a lag, but a very small lag. The, the, Folks that are selling gasoline are more than happy to raise the price. Um, they need to economically, but uh, it's it's much stickier on the way down than it is on the way up. Um, as far and I believe the rule of thumb is for every ten dollars a barrel of crude, it amounts to about a quarter more at the gasoline uh, at the gas pump. So like a, a do what you will with that math. Um, and then as far as exports, uh, I think the answer is simple on why we're not exporting more oil. And that's because we're a net consumer. Uh, we produce about 10 million uh, barrels a, a day and we, uh, we, we consume about 20. 
So we're about a 2x ratio on the amount that we produce versus what we consume. So we're not keen on uh, exporting oil because we still are very much an oil-driven economy. In this market over the last three, four, five months, we've seen equity prices go down and we've seen bond prices go down. There was the illusion way back when that, well, would bonds, would stocks go down, bonds go up. And that was really tied to the notion that uh, stocks go down in a slowing economy. In a slowing economy, uh, you know, more money is available than there's demand for, therefore the cost of money, which is an interest rate goes down, uh, which causes bond prices to go up. And in this instance, we've seen both stocks and bonds go down. Interest rates have gone up, as Jason described earlier in this conversation, the Fed tightening that's occurring, uh, which is pushing rates up. As rates go up, uh, we have seen stocks coming down. And the stocks are going down because of valuation metric changes. And of course, the potential for a slowdown in earnings if we enter a recession due to rising rates. Jason, do you have anything to add to that? I, I would just say, you know, while not unprecedented, you know, in fact, we experienced this uh, to some degree in 2018, the stock prices down, bond prices down. Um, it, it, it is unusual to experience years where they both drop together. Um, and and while, when it does occur, it can feel particularly discomforting because it feels like there's no place to hide when correlations are high and everything's selling off. Um, but there are some very specific factors at play here causing the recent association. I mean, we've talked about them, namely inflation and the Fed. Um, both factors are exerting this downward pressure, and we believe that both factors will subside over time. Um, and I think, meanwhile, within the context of that, we continue to own shorter duration, higher quality bonds in our fixed, um, in our fixed income portfolios for clients who have a bond allocation, which helps to mitigate some of that weakness in the bond market. But um, yeah, I, I think uh, this too shall pass. It will just take some patience, like so many things in investing. Thanks, Jason. I'd like to bring uh, Patrick into the conversation. And Patrick, as a, as a wealth advisor, works with a lot of you directly, helping you plan, make your decisions around life events, a big one being retirement. And it's really much more, it's, it's a whole lot nicer to retire when your portfolio is at a high and you perceive it's going to stay at a high value uh, than it is when you've had a sell-off. Things change. So Patrick, I want to throw the question out there. And Jason, of course, you're willing to, uh, willing to chime in anytime you like. Is now a bad time to retire? And how does the sequence of return risk play into this? Yeah, thanks, John and Jason. And it's always nice to get your inputs on markets and the economy before we dive into this. Essentially, our job on the advisory team is to take, you know, what, what these two do and apply it to your real world questions. And I'd say the question of is now a good time to retire is probably the most common question that I've been getting asked. And it's, it's a, a very good question. And I'll start off, I guess, by saying that, you know, I always hope that the question can be addressed before the big day is here. Um, you know, I find the people that are most confident going into retirement are the ones who have properly stress test their financial plans with us. Um, they're comfortable with the different paths we can take given less than ideal market conditions. Um, we always say the financial planning is a process and you know, implementing these withdrawal strategies is a hugely important part of that. Ultimately, as John alluded to, the question that we're asking here when we say, is it a bad time to retire, really is, you know, how are my retirement withdrawal rates um, affected by poor market performance, in this case, and high inflation in my early retirement years? So what we're actually talking about here when we talk of the risk of you know, poor real returns, so accounting for taxes and inflation early on in retirement is sequence of return risk. Um, what that means on a high level is it shows that prolonged poor returns early in retirement while drawing down on your portfolio assets has a larger negative impact than it does um, if those same returns and withdrawals occurred you know, later in retirement. So, you know, if, if we look at it, you know, from a 10,000 foot view, we could say in this case, yes, you know, it, it's possible that it's not the best time to retire, but, but we don't have any idea really 
all we can do on the um, advisory team is really find ways to help you minimize the impact of what's happening. And that's where I feel the crux of the value that we can add for you lies. So I guess I'll start by saying there's really a, a few things that stand out that, that we can do. And I'd say number one, uh, I talked about uh, on the onset of, of you know, my conversation here is really developing an effective withdrawal strategy um, for the first years of retirement that hopefully doesn't include selling large amounts of stock from your investment accounts. Um, you know, simply we can do that by bolstering cash positions. We can use fixed income strategies. We can use income from other sources, depending on, uh, you know, your individual situation. Second, and a very simple tactic is just to be able to be flexible with your spending in retirement. Um, you know, even a, a question as simple as, hey, markets are way down, inflation is, is very high. I was planning on taking, you know, uh, you know $50,000 for the vacation I wanted to take. You know, is that the best time or can I be flexible and take that when, you know, markets are up and it's a more comfortable position for my portfolio and long-term withdrawals? And I'd say the third option and a very important one heading into retirement at any time is just making sure that um, our asset allocation is appropriate. So, you know, if you do need to draw on the equity portion of your retirement assets, you know, during a recession, when starting retirement, I'd like to say, let's make sure your exposure to stocks is appropriate for your goals and risk tolerance. And that's a conversation we would um, obviously love to, to have with you. So, you know, overall, I'd say, you know, any time can be a bad time to retire if you aren't prepared and you don't have a strategy. Um, you know, we say not to time the market. You know, I would suggest that we don't time retirement based solely on market conditions either. And, you know, know that we're happy and willing and it is our job to have these conversations with you. Um, and our main goal is to really make you feel as comfortable as you can when it's when you're retiring and base our strategy around your individual circumstances. It, it's a challenging issue. And, and I wanna just take the flip side of what you just said, Patrick, where you said any time can be a bad time to retire. Well, any time can be a good time to retire if we have realistic expectations, our asset allocation is correct, and we have some flexibility around spending. Uh, I know a number of you are right in that zone today of contemplating retiring within the next 12 months. And when we were having conversations six to eight months ago, they felt really positive around retirement. Now with a market decline, uh, there's doubt because we have a recency bias. We see what's happened over the last five to six months and think, oh my gosh, if this is what my retirement is like in terms of the performance of my financial assets, that's anxiety provoking. We need to recognize that recency bias. We need to recognize that when we are in down periods in the market, it feels like they're going to go on forever. Well, they don't. At least they never have in the last millennia of market performance. They don't go down forever. And, and so it will change. My sense for those of you who are in that position is to be thought to, to allow yourself to, to think through, you know, every time we've seen the market go down, turns out it goes up afterwards. And this time won't be any different. And right now, as it's going down, uh, there's a tendency to say, well, what if it goes down more? And what if it goes down more after that? And what if it goes down more after that? Uh, and then it never generates a good return after that. Well, that's a really unlikely probability. And I don't think we wanna base our lives on extremely unlikely probabilities. I think it's important in this period, if retirement is what you're contemplating over the next six, 12, 18 months to recognize that this is how markets work. Uh, they will return. And as long as we have some flexibility around our spending and an ability to maintain an asset allocation through time to beat inflation over time, uh, it works out. Along, somewhat along those lines, uh, a question did come in with regard to 
gosh, if, if we think we see a re recession coming, what would we do to protect or change the portfolios? And, and I wanna put that in the context of economists have a fabulous record of forecasting 12 of the last three recessions. Um, we we set, tend to see recessions around every turn. And so yet, if, you, if a recession is truly there, what are the types of steps that can be taken within a portfolio? Yeah, so I'll, I'll jump in on that one, John. Um, it's a great question. And as you quipped, um, you know, both the market and economists and just about every investor I've ever met uh, does a pretty terrible job of forecasting recession. Nevertheless, um, I did go over some of the um, leading indicators that we rely on to help us gauge the probabilities of recession. Again, it's not a clean forecast. It's not to be taken as binary yes or no, but just more of a, a continuum of probabilities. And again, I'll reiterate the good news is that right now uh, we don't see recession, uh, we don't see recession on the horizon, on the near-term horizon. That said, if that were to change and we were to see some of these indicators um, start to flip and have us a little more concerned or a little more cautious around the business cycle over the near term, what, what might we do with the portfolio? Well, I think the first thing, and this will echo um, some of what Patrick said, is you wanna have your asset allocation right before the recession begins. You don't wanna be trying to figure that out as stock prices are falling. You don't, you know, bear markets and corrections are a terrible time to figure out what your risk tolerance is. It's a good idea to have that stuff set up well in advance. So you're not trying to um, you know, put that together with, when it feels terrible and when, when prices are falling. So assuming you have the correct asset allocation going into recession, that is the mix between stocks and bonds. On the equity side, on the bond side, we wouldn't do anything. On the equity side, uh, what we are likely to do and what we have done in the past is when we think a recession has a high probability of occurring over the near term, we can do what we call um, is taking beta out of the portfolio. And that's a fancy way of saying trying to reduce the volatility on the equity side while retaining a fully invested posture. What we don't want to do is try to time the market. What we don't want to do is sell great companies that we have very strong views on over the next you know, one, three, and five years because we might experience turbulence in the market and a recession over the next six to 12 months. Uh, we don't want to take 10-year money and turn it into 10-minute money or 10-month money. So we want to really retain that long-term orientation as investors. But we can remove some data from the portfolio as we're looking at the securities on the equity side that make up the portfolio and still have that high quality tilt, still own those great companies well diversified, but maybe make the ride a little bit more smooth as we're going through the recession and bear market. Jason, would you do a little follow-up? You and I have had this conversation as has the entire investment team uh, quite regularly, just sort of the, the valuation metrics right now of, if you will, growth companies versus the alleged safe stocks that are out there. Yeah. Um, great question. It's, it's a, it's a, you know, curious observation as we're looking across the different sectors and industry groups. You know, we have, you know, great companies, great stocks like Alphabet, who everyone knows as Google, um, trading at, for example, just just below 20 times their estimated earnings for 2023. Just looking at over, let's say, the next four quarters, certainly into calendar year 2023, it's a sub 20 PE. Um, that's pretty cheap for a company that has a very wide economic moat, is benefiting from extremely strong secular tailwinds of growth, that is the rise of digital advertising, where they have, dare I say a near monopoly, but certainly they're operating in an oligopoly with only a couple of companies and they have the most market share. They're growing revenues north of 20%, have consistently done that for well over a decade and are continuing to innovate. And, and, and invest in the business. That's a really fantastic company that we want to own, but it's trading at really just barely above a market multiple. So to us, that is an attractive valuation to own a great asset. Meanwhile, if you look at other areas in the market, whether it's utilities, whether it's consumer staple companies, you know, we have Coke trading at 28 times earnings. It's growing at nominal GDP, while again, a Google growing revenues, not profit, but revenues north of 20% per year is trading at a PE almost 10 turns lower. So 
there are some distortions in the market and some things that don't make sense that are certainly reflective of the concern and the fear that is out there given the correction, given inflation, and given all the things that we've already discussed. Um, and those are opportunities. Those are opportunities for enterprising, long-term oriented investors. And we want to retain those types of tilts because we need to take that multi-year view as opposed to what's the market going to do next week? What's it going to do next quarter? It would be wonderful if we all had those answers and our crystal ball was that clear. But the truth of the matter is what we can do well is own great companies, own great investments, and think and act long-term. And we'll continue to do that. Thanks, Jason. Patrick, we do get the question fairly often, particularly as markets sell off, should I convert my IRA to a Roth IRA? And while everyone, we will need to visit with each person to help them make that determination, perhaps in broad strokes, you can speak to us about, you know, what's the math there? What, what drives that decision? Yeah, and, and this, this question is a question that, that gets asked um, at any time, all of the time. So I think it, it's always worth um, revisiting and just kind of giving some uh, clarity around maybe what questions to ask. And then if after I kind of discuss, you know, a few of my thoughts, you still think, hey, you know, that sounds exactly like what I'm looking to do, then I think at that point, it's, it's a great time to come talk to us. Um, I guess on, on a high level to start, a Roth conversion, you know, what is it? So, you know, it, it's a penalty-free taxable transfer from a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA. It can also be from workplace accounts, but essentially it's saying that any amount that you convert, whether it's part of or all of the account from a pre-tax to an after-tax IRA will become taxable to you in the year the conversion occurs. And the real goal is for the amount converted to the Roth is that it will grow tax-free and be withdrawn tax-free, which, um, is very nice, especially like when I was discussing, you know, retirement income. Uh, it's nice to have that in the box of tools. So I think it's useful if, if you want to think about these as I go through them. I'll kind of have a few reasons why we may consider a Roth conversion and then a couple of questions to ask yourself. A couple of the reasons that we look to actually process a Roth conversion would be one to diversify the tax exposure. And I, I briefly talked about that um, just a couple seconds ago, but if we're taking money that we need to pay income tax on in retirement and essentially converting it to something we can draw tax free, hopefully doing that earlier on um, in our saving lives, then it gives us more flexibility when the time comes to take withdrawals. The second is if you think taxes will rise in the future, and that's you know a very broad statement, but you know many people believe that income taxes are only going up over time, you know, and if that's the case, paying tax now, taking withdrawals tax free later would make sense from a math standpoint. Number three, I would say is if we want to maximize wealth transfer to beneficiaries, it can be a, a decent option. Roth IRAs aren't subject to required minimum distributions uh, in the account owner's lifetime. So they can be a pretty effective tool for legacy planning for some people. And the last one I would say, and we, we saw a lot of this, you know, during COVID where there were a lot of layoffs, a lot of people taking time off of work, but income expectations. I would say if income is expected to increase a drastic amount in the future, or if you're currently earning lower than normal income, then it may make sense to look at this. And beyond that, to, to really determine if it's right for you, I usually go through a, a quick three question um, exam, if you will. And if the answer is yes to all of them, you know, I think it's fair to say we'd love to talk to you about, you know, the options, because most of the time, if we answer yes to these, it's worth having the conversation to see if it fits into your, to your goals. And the first one would be, you know, do you expect to be in the same or higher tax bracket during retirement, right? So where you are now or even higher, depending on, on what's going on. Two, do you expect to take withdrawals after at least five years from the conversion? So this is essentially just saying, you know, this is a longer term 
play, if you're planning on taking withdrawals early, there, there's multiple things, multiple issues that we can run into. And lastly, just asking the question, do I have the money to pay the taxes from an account that isn't the account I'm converting from? Essentially a bank account, hopefully not an emergency fund or something you're using um, for other purposes. But do you have the money to pay taxes out of pocket? Makes it much easier to see the benefits quicker of paying taxes now and growing the money tax-free. Thanks, Patrick. So we had a, a, a couple of questions around blockchain and I'll, I'll take a shot at those. One was, uh, is it likely that blockchain or to blockchain tokens become an acceptable currency? Uh, my perspective is we are a long way from that. When a currency, the value of a currency is stability. When we look at blockchain and tokens, <laughs> stability has not been their most salient feature. So my perspective is, and I think our team's perspective is, we are a long way from tokens, blockchain tokens becoming a useful currency. Uh, the other is, you know, does blockchain have applications? Absolutely. We are seeing individual companies, think banks, uh, think companies with lots of disparate offices and a lot of transactions, figuring out ways to use to build their own internal blockchains using that same technology internally. Now, does that, that benefits us as consumers from the perspective that if they can make transactions safer and cheaper, that's great. But as an investable, there's no real investable route to, to buy into JP Morgan's internal blockchain efforts. So blockchain as a currency, not seeing it for a while. Uh, blockchain as a technology that will prove useful in some situations in some companies, yes. You guys are free to add to that or we can move on. I would agree with everything you said. Uh, yep. So I want to. There's a question here that, that crosses over inflation uh, and other issues, and it, it's sort of a funny question, but I like it's a serious question. I own a dozen donkeys. What does inflation mean for the price of hay? Well, we've my sister's an avid equestrian, lives down in southwestern Colorado, and has to buy hay, and she's watched both her access to hay and her price go up considerably. And it's being driven domestically by two things, drought and fuel prices. Drought is a long-term trend that we have seen throughout the, the Western United States that has reduced yields. Uh, fuel prices are a nearer term trend that have been a result of, of constraints in the supply chain of, of hydrocarbons that we've discussed. The drought one matters. California in 2010 had over 500, just about 500,000 acres in alfalfa. Pardon me, had a million acres in alfalfa. Here in 2020, they have 500,000 acres in alfalfa. That's drought related. So yes, those issues are, the inflationary issues there have a lot to do with how we have seen climates evolve in the Western US and the hay growing regions of the country. So I think as we look across our portfolio companies and think about our investments, uh, impacts of climate are important to consider in what we do, and we must consider them in what we do. So that is a, it, it's a challenge. Those, those pressures aren't going away. Certainly the, the climate and drought pressures do not appear to be going away anytime soon. I don't have anything to add, John. I'm just glad we have a hay expert on the line in Albion, because uh, that certainly is not me. Yeah. Well, uh, well we have really gotten through the, the questions we wish to get through and, and all the ones that you've all brought to us. And I just want to thank you all for for reaching out and being part of this call and giving us the chance to share our thoughts with you. Of course, reach out to us directly to discuss your individual situation and any adjustments or thoughts you may have. Our goal is to keep you all on the right track as we head off into the future.
And thank you, Jason and Patrick, for joining us on this call and offering your insights. Yeah, thank you. And thanks to everybody for joining. Really appreciate it. Great. Well, with that, we'll sign off and talk to you all the next time.